This is Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio 88.7 WPSC on the campus of William Patterson University. We are trying to make the music business better. We are your free advice. Music Biz 101 and more. Radio show and podcast. I am your professor, David Kirk. What a week, huh? It's been a crazy, wacky week. That's right. It's Groundhog Day all over again. Who is this speaking? To whom am I speaking? Oh, it doesn't matter. (laughs) That's right. We call him (laughs) Dr. Marconi. Pensa Cali, what's his name, the Groundhog? Pensa, Pensa Connie, Phil, Pensa Yeah, Pali, whatever, Pensa, right. Yeah. Punk, Punxsutawney Phil. We're only yeah. saying that because on this campus, as most of you probably know, that yesterday was a Monday. So we had Monday, Monday, and then Wednesday. Right. So those of you... There was way too much of you those three days. Way too much. <laughs> I know. Jess is saying that she had me Monday, Monday, and Wednesday. Right. And I had her Monday, Monday, and Wednesday so as well. So it's just... Yes, it was Groundhog Day all over again. Right. I oh. feel a little bit like the young Bill Murray. <laughs> That's right. And, and you look a little bit better than Bill Murray. So who did. do we got tonight here well, in the booth? Well, we got a couple people. We have uh, Jess Frank, who yes. is our producer. We should give Jess a big hand. Jess Frank. Thank you, oh, Jess. No, I don't deserve that yet until Ali Mack's song plays right. Okay, yes. We were supposed to have uh, The World is Ours by the Ali Mack Project play at the beginning, but we're having technical issues. Figured it out. Do you want to start it? If, I yeah, mean, start if, it right now, and then want. I'll do I'll do a little Keep talk. Keep quiet. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the background. Because we didn't play it at all last week because there were, again, issues with it. There we go. Okay. The voice okay, of got it. Allison McKenzie. It happened. It worked. That's okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's the Allie Mack Project. And we have with us coming, he's going to call in shortly, Yanni Peary, who is the director of digital for Atlantic Records. That's going to be mm-hmm. great. And we'll introduce our student co-host. Any relation to Yanni? Uh, I promised that I would not make any Yanni jokes to uh, him okay, because it was too obvious. Did he call in yet? No, okay, he's we not got all this time now until we call to make the so, Yanni jokes. Uh, everybody should know that uh, being Music Biz 101 and more, go to our website, Music Biz How 101. How did he get that name? Yanni. Yeah, did his mother like Yanni? The oh, oh, the current Yanni who's going to call in. Yes. He's too old. He's 30. He's probably like, uh, no, oh. no, he's like 28, 29. Oh, well, Yanni's so let's go back there to, now. But Yanni, Yanni was a big deal, I would say, starting in 1990. Right. And this Yanni, then if he's, uh, let's say he's 30, would have been born in 1985. So pre, but do you know who Yanni, the artist who his wife at least was? No, I don't. Linda Evans, member from wow. Dynasty. Yes. In, uh, ABC... No, that's it was a, uh, but a big Aaron Spelling show. That yeah. was when Heather Locklear was on two shows at one time. She was on Dynasty and she was on TJ Hooker. Mm-hmm. That's she had a good agent. I'll tell you that. Yes. Um, now uh, Yanni's going to call in. Go to our website musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for our newsletter every week. You'll get an email on Sunday not night. The famous Yanni. <laughs> no, no, not the famous Yanni did not call in. Oh, okay. and then you should also visit He's us. Probably on, making someone smile right now, right? <laughs> Just like stage. Doc Marconi always makes everybody smile. Every student of his smiles. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Music Biz One Hundred One WP. The podcast of this will be on Stitcher and also on SoundCloud. Before we get to Yanni, we also need to introduce to you our student co-host for the evening. His name is and shall ever be Miles Franco. Miles Franco, who the student co-host for the night. Hey, y'all. Miles is not from New Jersey. Doc, give him the third degree for a moment. Well, he isn't from New Jersey, is he? No, I'm not. I'm from South Carolina, the great city of Columbia. And how did you find us? Um, I was, it's actually, as most of y'all know, it's one of two uh, programs that offer an MBA in music management. And uh, it's very appealing to me, and I'm here now. And where'd you go to school undergrad? 
Uh, I got my undergrad in media arts with a focus on audio engineering at the University of South Carolina. Ah, Columbia. Makes all sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> Right. Quite, quite a bit, not because that was not a Spanish accent you had. That was no, the Columbia, right. South Carolina. Well, yeah, we'll Columbia. be using that accent from time to time this year. Yes. We indeed. don't know how, but we will be. <laughs> we're going to tie it in. Yeah. And before we introduce uh, Yanni Piri, before he comes on, we also want to give one bit of thanks to the Music Biz Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should save the date, May 16th through the 18th of 2016. That's when Music Biz goes to Music Biz in the Music City. We will be at the Music Biz Association convention with a group of students interviewing industry pros and making connections in the great city of Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. So that's that's a big deal for us. But at the moment, we should we should put all all of that business aside and introduce the guest of the year for us. His name is Yanni Piri, director of digital Atlantic Records. Yanni Piri, Yanni Piri. Hey, I'm I'm here. There we yep. go. It, all right, great. We're excited. I'm. We spoke uh, early in the week. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philpin. Then we have Dr. Stephen Marconi, who is the respected elder on the call. Yo. Hey, Dr. Steve. How's it going? <laughs> okay. So, uh, how did you get into this crazy business, and when did you get uh, into this business? Six years now. Uh, started originally with Sony Music, um, fresh out of college, uh, working in the catalog division of Sony Music. And at that point in time, that was like when social media was really starting to take off. So, I came there and you know started working with artists like Bruce Springsteen, AC/DC, uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Michael Jackson, and online and social media and all these people over there were just throwing up their hands like what do we do with this so um essentially what i did is i helped them you know come up with like a whole strategy about you know creating some sort of content to go up here you know at, at that point in time you know i felt really comfortable uh using you know social media but it was something that was a, a bit foreign to a lot of people there so i kind of just took the reins with it and went with it and that's kind of how i kick-started my career and i realized very early on that being a part of uh, the digital side, uh, particularly within marketing, that's that's probably a pretty good place to be right now. If you know if you're going to work in music, that's probably a better place than you know trying to sell uh, CDs and uh, brick and mortar retail. So I just kind of kept going with that, and uh, you know so that position evolved over time, and I found myself uh, with opportunities to go to different divisions within Sony, and then. Uh, with agencies specifically looking at the entertainment space. And from there, I was able to come across this position at Atlantic Records about six months ago. So I've been with Atlantic Records the past six months, uh, within the music industry for about six years now. And that's pretty much much where I'm at. Great. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to Gettysburg College in Uh Southern Pennsylvania. Way far away from the music business. Way far away from the music <laughs> business. I was, I was an English lit major at Gettysburg College. So, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm this kid from Maine who went to school in southern Pennsylvania. Like, God. I mean, what the hell do I know about music? It's like, I think really what it comes down to is having that curiosity about it and that drive to kind of figure that out. Like, you know, when I think about music, I think music is this form of media that's like incredibly fluid and easy to uh, consume no matter what you're doing. You know, it's the background music sometimes of your everyday events in life. You see it in commercials, uh, on TV, in movies, and it kind of complements everything else that you have going on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it's been really interesting over the past 
15 years watching the music industry become completely eroded to what it was, uh, you know, back when people went to stores and bought CDs and just trying to figure out how to build it back up again. So there's this, you know, idea that, you know, when you see a business in turmoil, there's one of two things happening, one of which is get the hell out. Or the other thing is, you know, it's an incredible opportunity to get in. So, you know, I've, everyone kind of told me like, what are you doing like, going into work in the music industry? I, mean, I had internships at uh, Discovery Communications. Um, mm. You know, music is a huge passion of mine and you know, the opportunity to go and work for uh, a major label and you know, transition uh, on the uh in my early 20s. I think that's uh, been a great experience so far. Mm-hmm. Hey, Yanni, could I ask you a quick question? We, we, right now, Dr. Marconi continues. Sure. Now, you, we see by your resume you were at uh, E-Generator. Is that the uh, R-Generator? Yeah, R-Generator. Right. Generator, and what was yeah. that? So that was an agency that um, transpired out of a division of Sony. So oh. uh, oh. Sony had a in-house agency that essentially handled all um, – digital media, building of websites, analytics, uh, CRM, you know, anything that essentially uh, touched the internet. Uh, they had a division there specifically that served uh, the music side of it to, you know, facilitate and whatever they need to be done. Mm-hmm. And our, we had a really ambitious um, uh, head of that division who thought he could in, uh, scale uh, that side of the business beyond just Sony Music and start supplying that service to a lot of different uh, entertainment companies. Mm-hmm. So I aligned with him and we left Sony with their financial backing uh, and moved out of the, uh, you know, the corporate uh, offices in Midtown Manhattan to the uh, trendy uh, Soho loft areas and mm-hmm. amongst all the other startups. And we created this company where essentially what we did is provide those exact same sort of services to a breadth of entertainment companies, whether it's uh, television, film, uh, music, or gaming. Like mm-hmm. my clients were like Breaking Bad, uh, Ted, like that movie, mm-hmm. the, uh, the bear. Mm-hmm. Um, Candy Crush was one of my clients, as well as uh, working with uh, Sony Music and the breadth of their artists, like you know everyone from Daft Punk to ACDC right. uh, to... Um, was it uh, Avril Lavigne um, mm. to all of uh, Universal's uh, clients as well, helping them come up with like e-commerce and direct-to-fan marketing uh, strategies around that. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounded like it could have really worked. Oh, I mean, they're still they're they're still they're doing still, it. They're still trudging along there. You know, the interesting thing about you know their what they're positioned in specifically was uh, a lot of e-commerce, and you know that we we talk more and more about that. I mean, I think. It was uh, Ben Howowitz of like the uh, renowned uh, venture capital firm Andreessen Howowitz, who says that within 10 years he predicts that all brick and mortar retail will essentially be dead because mm-hmm. everyone's just turning to Amazon and like these direct to consumer models mm-hmm. of purchasing products, whatever that's going to be. And there's no uh, telling inside of that that looking at like the music and entertainment industry, right? Like you know we used to everyone used to go to a store to buy a CD, and now you essentially you're buying uh, music. Uh, where you were buying music on iTunes and now you're streaming it on YouTube and Spotify. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a, a massive um, side of that, that where people are going to turn and look, you know, that 
that angle where they can purchase something directly from an artist, whether it's tickets, whether it's uh, music, merchandise, whatever it may be. And that's, that's certainly true across the entire board of uh, all entertainment. And, you know, you see it more and more uh, across every type of business vertical as well. You know, mm-hmm. Amazon kind of controls that market at the moment, but at any point in time, you know, Walmart is getting more and more uh, positioned to be able to sell their products in the e-commerce sort of perspective. So it's kind of like from a mm-hmm. macro shift, if you mm-hmm. look at it, that's definitely something that's happening. And uh, I think to be able to do that effectively, you have to be able to easily be doing it at incredible scale like Amazon. I mean, they have drones, essentially, that are start delivering their products before too long. Or you need to have such high margins on your product, you need to be like actually creating the product itself in-house and then selling it uh, mm-hmm. to be able to be extremely profitable. So that's one of the, uh, I think, challenges that any one of these e-commerce companies will face. Uh, if they don't have great margins on it, they got to be selling it at a huge scale. And you know that all depends on what the product you're selling is. Yeah, some say that um, actually Amazon spends too much of their money on delivery. And actually the growth is going to be in people like Walmart or Macy's or whomever where the store will act as the um, the point of no, the point of delivery, not the point of purchase, but the fulfillment center. And there's so many around the world that uh, they're going to have that it's going to be cheaper for them to deliver product. And in actuality, that Amazon may have to do something in sort of drones, maybe one thing they may open up a big, you know, five different retailers across the um, larger metropolitan areas in the country but uh it seems that that makes some sense that they just might be spending a little too much money on that yeah and there's also this idea of like the shared economy right like there's people who are doing jobs like driving a car for uber you know yeah how, how long before uber drivers are also absolutely de facto deliverers yeah i think i think brownie and fedex are dead in the long run Tell you yeah, the truth. So it's like it, it is interesting when you kind of start thinking about it. Like, I mean, that's like one corner yep. of you know that that sort of business. You know, that's kind of, kind of tying it all back there. That that entertainment side of the business. At one point in time, that was like you know where I was heavily, heavily focused uh, with entertainment is trying to help these artists uh, create these communities, these fan bases, these ardent and loyal fans who would then you know purchase products uh, that we had to sell back to them or purchase experiences through concert tickets or uh, meet and greets, whatever it was we were trying to offer. Mm-hmm. And then how would it fulfill that? And I think, I think that would be one of the, the larger challenges, you know, from anyone beyond Amazon, Amazon itself, it's, that's certainly a problem for them. They spend a lot, a lot of money doing that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we're streaming. Do you think's here for good for the near future? And the, oh, absolutely. everyone yeah, is think- now adjusted to it. I don't think everyone's adjusted to it. I think that there is still a large, uh, quantifiable number of people who, one, actually, it's crazy. People still buy CDs. I don't know anyone who buys CDs, but people still do buy CDs. Yeah, I know. So, yes. <laughs> every weekly report I get, I see, huh, we sold how many CDs? Like, where are the people buying these? Yeah, that's exactly so, what I say, yes. Um, I mean, and I have two ideas about that, one of which is going into a store like Walmart and buying a CD or Target and buying a CD. Uh, the other, which is you're buying it through the artist's actual website. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and there's going to be beyond those three places mentioned, there's not going to be a whole lot of other places to purchase, uh, especially for most of, uh, most of the world. I mean, you know, living in New York city, you can find little niche shops that will sell 
you know, albums and CDs that for the most part, that they just don't really exist uh, anymore. And then um, for the second, I think there are people who are still going to be purchasing downloads uh, for whatever reason they're accustomed to doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've uh, gotten to the, the flow and the rhythm and the, the user experience of, uh, of iTunes, uh, you know, between their desktop and their, you know, their phone is something that they're comfortable using. And, you know, if you get someone into, uh, people are creatures of habit. So if you get them into doing something like that, they're, they're really not going to stop for any reason. Mm-hmm. Even if you can just, you know, even if they're buying an album a month, it essentially comes down to, um, you know, it's the same thing that you'd be paying for streaming. Uh, and then, yeah, that's then the whole thing about streaming and like, you know, it's, we talk about Spotify and, you know, we talk about, you know, Apple music, uh, you know, the elephant in the room is YouTube. I mean, they, mm-hmm. uh, that's certain, certainly the largest streaming platform in the world, hands down. And everyone gets, uh, you know, upset and aggravated about, uh, Spotify's payouts, but I mean, YouTube's payouts are considerably worse and that's, mm-hmm essentially where everyone goes to hear music. So mm-hmm. why do, with why the do you, exception. Why do you think uh, YouTube gets gets off, do, uh, you know, gets off on that? Because if you read the media, the, you know, the music industry media, it's always railing on Spotify or, you know, over the summer it was Apple Music and then Taylor Swift saved every artist in the world by convincing them to, to pay something. I said that uh, sarcastically, but, um, but yeah. YouTube, nobody's screaming about YouTube and it, it is true that YouTube pays less. How are they able to not get as much, I guess, bad press. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. So YouTube is a content creator's platform, which is why, you know, YouTube Key uh, is supposed to come out in the next couple of weeks. It's like imminent. I'm not too, I'm not overly optimistic that YouTube Key is suddenly going to come into the space and everyone's going to uh, migrate from Spotify um, over to YouTube Key. I think that there's probably a thousand videos that have been put up onto YouTube in the past week that have like, five million views on them and they could be anything from like a music video to someone, you know, filming their cat. Like there's no, there's no sort of network in there to say that like, this is good content and this is just like flash in the pan content that's going to come and go. Uh, and so I think that because it's like, so, you know, for lack of a better term, crowdsourced, it's just a bunch of people uploading stuff onto it. You know, it kind of gets uh, a free, uh, pass and a car blanche and like, you know, trying to say that they're a music platform, whereas Spotify and Apple Music have a very specific goal. You know, they're trying to create content. They're trying to, you know, be that, you know, there's, there's a barrier of entry if you want to become an artist on these platforms. Like Spotify, you have to go through something like, uh, you know, TuneCore or something to try and get your music up there. Whereas YouTube, mm-hmm. like we could literally you know, film whatever and put it up there. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, it might get a million views. So it's, they, they've kind of been able to finagle a bit. Uh, and, and in doing so, it's also, it's Google. I mean, Google mm-hmm. controls the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, yeah. they kind of do what Google does what Google wants to do. It's, it's Larry Page and Sergey Brin's world and we're just living in it. So. <laughs> now, uh, with Warner not being part of Vivo, does that make your job more difficult? No, it makes it easier, like significantly easier. Really? We can go directly. So we go directly to the largest media company in the world and strike up relationships and deals and, you know, ideas with them without having to go through, you know, the whole Vivo, whatever they're doing over there. I mean, working with uh, Vivo for a couple of years, I mean, it's a, it's a great platform. It's service, service, service. It's uh 
you know, it, it, they make more on advertising, I guess, off their videos than, uh, than, you know, just having it up on YouTube. But, you know, being able to go directly to YouTube and to Google, uh, it just makes uh, our lives a lot easier. And there, there are certain things you want to fight and there are certain things you don't want to fight. Uh, and you got to know when to pick your battles, when mm-hmm. to hold them and when to fold them. And like, you know, with something like YouTube, it's, it, the, the, the crowd has spoken, the public have decided what they want. And, you know, we, we all talk about, you know, Spotify could hit a hundred million users by the end of the year. Uh, when we hit a hundred million paid users, uh, that's a billion dollars, mm-hmm. uh, a month in revenue, 70% of those revenues go back to, uh, the stakeholders, the, the, you know, the people who own the, uh, own the content. So that's essentially, uh, the labels. Um, so that's $700 million being paid back to labels on a monthly basis. Uh, then of that, it gets paid out in market share. So if a label has 20% market share, you're getting roughly uh, $140 million mm-hmm. in revenues. So, I mean, that's, that's a great, and I think that that's going to be a huge part of the business. Uh, and, you know, YouTube, who knows with YouTube? You know, you're going to get billions of views off YouTube. Uh, you know, that's, that comes on the whole other thing of what, what the monetization strategy is for the next, uh, you know, five to ten years. I mean, whether, you know, compounding those streaming numbers, eventually is it going to be profitable and make sense? I think so. I think that, you know, if people actually pay to have a streaming service, it might make sense. And then if it can be subsidized by some sort of ad-supported network, then that's going to work as well. But these are all these are all questions that you know can be debated up to either side. But I, I believe that there will be a, a piece of people, very small amount of people, who are still buying music, and then there will be uh, a larger amount of people who are paying to have a you know access to a streaming service. Then there will be billions upon billions of people who are essentially just using ad-supported networks that eventually, you know, that will have incremental revenues. So, I mean, from a business standpoint, I think it will make sense. You're the director of digital at Atlantic Records. Could you kind of tell us what the job description is, what what you're doing there, and how the, how the department is structured, who you report to, who reports to you, that kind of thing? Yeah, so I oversee uh, rock and pop uh, specifically within my purview is, you know, all the rock and pop artists that we have uh, signed to uh, Atlantic. And then I report to the vice president uh, of digital. And what we do is kind of we, our job is essentially to help uh, our clients, the artists come up with initially, you know, whenever I sit down with a manager for the first time, I get up on my soapbox and I say, this is the, you know, the state of the industry from my perspective, you know, love it or hate it, this is what I believe is happening. You know, this is a 5,000 foot view, and this is how I'm going to try and, you know, fulfill your dreams. If you are an artist, you uh, you have a vision, and I'm going to help you uh, see this vision. So uh, essentially what I do is I consult them on everything that, you know, can possibly touch the Internet. So I'm like, I tell people, like, what do you do? I'm like, Internet thing. So if it touches the Internet, I probably have some sort of uh, – uh, influence in determining what the direction is uh, for these particular artists. So that starts at a very high level. You know, we talk about, you know, what's going on, what their you know, digital footprint is at the moment, how many followers they might have on social media, uh, what their website situation is, how many subscribers they have to their newsletter list, how 
competent they feel at uh, using digital media. Can they, you know, send it out a tweet? Can they actually uh, use Snapchat or post to Facebook? And then from there, it's outlining strategy from, you know, month one, uh, a three month, six month, and twelve months. Like, you know, these are the objectives that we have. These are the goals that we're going to try to achieve, and this is how we're going to do that. So it's Outlining, outlining a matter of uh, strategies and then tactics on how to fulfill them and then setting expectations, right? It's like, you know, you're, you're just got signed to Atlantic Records. You're not going to have this, you know, top 10 social media account uh, within, you know, 12 months. But like, these are the types of things that we're going to do to make it happen. And, you know, one of the things I harp uh, on with, you know, all of my uh, artists and the management teams I work with and, you know, my team specifically is, you want to own as much data you, as you possibly can on your fans. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, I, you know, the entire media industry has done a really great job at making Facebook one of the richest com- com- uh, companies in the world. Mm-hmm. And essentially what we've done is we've just given away all of our content to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's fine. They've come up with a better platform for distributing it to 1.5 billion people on a monthly basis. But, we need to get better at owning as much information on those fans as possible, as opposed to just dumping content in there and just, you know, getting that instant gratification of seeing uh, likes and retweets and uh, views on our videos and start thinking about uh, a broader strategy in terms of like, okay, we're developing these uh, channels and now how do we get that information back to us? So how do we, that, you know, in the, you know, in the media industry, you call it uh, login information. That's essentially, you know, an email address or a phone number. You can't have, you can't sign into any application without one of the two. And what we want to do is get as much of that information as possible, because then what we can start doing is building out user profiles on what our fans look like. And once we have a really intuitive look on what our fans look like, then we have a better idea of how to market to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we first kind of like take in these artists, like let's, Let's build up your own and operated, your own O and O, and like let's make sure that you have uh, as many people into an addressable database that we can control, and then we're not reliant on someone like Facebook who overnight will say, "Hey, you know, you guys are reaching 70% of your fans on every single one of your posts, but now you're only going to reach, you know, 5%." And when that sort of thing happens, you know, you realize you relinquish a lot of control to these parties and to third parties and to these platforms who are monetizing your content and essentially, you know, printing money that I'm sure they just Mark Zuckerberg somewhere that's having money fights with like all the other, you know, executives, uh, and like, you know, YouTube and Snapchat and everywhere else. So we're just sitting there putting out content while we have billions of fans coming in there and consuming it all the time. So if you get an artist that really is not, um, just not comfortable working with social media, does Atlantic do the work for, that artist? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Like, initially, what we try and do is give them content strategy. Um, you know, these are the things that you should be doing. I, I always do an audit. I call it a digital audit with uh, my artists. I'll sit down with them and go through all their channels and look at, you know, every single channel they're active with online, whether it's, you know, everything from their website to their newsletter list to their YouTube channel to their Facebook page, Twitter, uh, Instagram, whatever they're using, I'm going to take a look at it. I'm going to come back and be like, hey, you're doing great at these things, but you know, if you do this, you might get a little bit more engagement. And, you know, I kind of see the feedback from that. And I find that's like a really helpful tool of just sitting down and providing that insight on what, what's working, what's not working. 
And then, you know, if they want to have some help on that, that's, you know, what we're there to provide. And essentially, the label's uh, two things. Uh, it's a bank, you know, writing checks out to artists saying, like, hey, you're now signed to us. Here's your advance. And then we're an agency, like an advertising agency. And essentially what we do is then provide the marketing strategy and structure so they can become, you know, to the best of their abilities and break out. Uh, so what, you know, I do specifically is I say, hey, if you're great at doing this piece of content, like keep doing that. If you have someone, a part of your team who's great at doing this, like we should, you know, work collaboratively on doing that. But there's other artists who pull on just like, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Mm-hmm. And in which case I'll say, all right, that's fine. You know, let's, uh, let's figure out ways that then therefore we can optimize this content that you're doing maybe across other channels and use it effectively in this one so that we have this cohesive brand experience uh, that tells your story. So, you know, when an artist, and I, I honestly, that's, I think that's, a, a, that's one of my favorite parts of the job is when you, know, you get to help influence, you know, the, uh, the story that the artist is telling directly to these fans through, you know, their social media platforms. It's like, that's your chance to uh, help them cultivate their image and their brand and, you know, showcase that. So I think that's a lot of fun. It's, it happens uh, fairly regularly, but it's never just, it's very rare that an artist will just say, hey, you know, here's the keys, take this and go. So there is, you know, a lot of approval processes and everything, but, you know, it definitely does happen. It's the idea of community management. It can be really difficult. You know, a company like, I don't know, Oreos or something probably has like 15 people just dedicated to, you know, uh, Oreo's Facebook page, where it's, you know, one one person dedicated to 15 different artists' uh, Facebook pages. It's like, I'm not going to sit there and respond to every comment and reply to every message that comes in. Uh, but what I will do is create great content and make sure that content is something that uh, embodies what you represent uh, and showcases the media that you're creating and showcases the identity that you're trying to show and that you want to uh, demonstrate to this audience. Uh, and then from there, uh, we can, you know, push that out. But, you know, we, we try and steer clear of the community management game. That's, uh, that's uh, a whole different beast. And, like, you're, co- you're competing against companies that, um, you know, are charging tens of thousands of dollars monthly to uh, handle, you know, one particular uh, brand's, channel there and like that's not what we do like the, the music industry is much much smaller than that so we're, we're not necessarily doing that you used the term engagement earlier and could you kind of define for us what that is and then also we're we have lots of tweets uh questions for you which we're going to start asking but miguel cool. rivera komazaleski and will wood also then wanted to know what is your most successful strategy and tactic to increase engagement well, I think that's a case-by-case basis. It depends on what exactly, uh, you know, I never go into a campaign just saying like, hey, let's, let's just do something and see what happens. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, a lot of people are just like, oh, like, let's get a bunch of ideas together and just like throw them up there. And, you know, it, it could be cool. It could, couldn't be cool. Who knows? Like, so what, what I kind of think about, I kind of go in with like trying to set expectations and a benchmark of success. Like, so a successive engagement on one channel might be completely different than the other. So an engagement on Facebook, for example, might be, you know, we're only getting, you know, a thousand likes on our posts. And then we come up with a piece of content that brings up to a thousand or 5,000 likes. So that's uh, you know, five X uh, uh, engagement compared to, 
what we were doing previously. You know, I, mm-hmm. I sent out, uh, I worked with a band called Portugal the Man, and we sent out a, a, an email recently. Uh, they were doing a Kanye West uh, cover, uh, which is up on SoundCloud if you want to check it out. Um, they did this Kanye West cover of Amazing, and it was, uh, it was perfect timing. Uh, I got a call from a manager who said, hey, uh, they did this cover of Amazing a while back, and now Kanye West is performing 808s and Heartbreaks uh, from front to back at the Hollywood Bowl. We should definitely do something and push this out. So we put together a newsletter, and the subject line is like, hey, Kanye, I'm going to let you finish, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and we saw that yeah. like, just having that as a subject line uh, increased the open rate by 30% versus the other uh, emails that we've been doing. So mm. it's, you know, kind of that idea of like, you know, what is engagement? Engagement is kind of picking up, figuring out the things you need to do to get people to take action. Mm-hmm. And that can be, it's going to be different in every sort of, uh, you know, every sort of uh, avenue you're looking at, every sort of channel you're looking at, you know, and, you know, to create engaging content, it's, it's kind of like a hyperbole and a bit of a, a loaded statement and a total buzzword. But like, it's, you know, it's, it's the difference between saying, uh, just posting a link to uh, a tour or something or a show that you're mm-hmm. playing. And then you're saying, uh, you know, posting a picture of you on stage uh, and the copy says, I can't wait to play for, uh, you know, this crowd in this state. You know, I can't wait to go play at Bowery Ballroom in New York City. I love New York City. I love New York's people. And I still have a few tickets left if you want to get those. So it's like it's creating like, you know, packageable experience of what you're trying to convey and then getting people to react on that. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, when we talk about engagement, it's like doing something that's provocative and is going to get people excited versus just like, you know, a stale press release that's just like, you know, mm-hmm. this is happening. So mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of that idea in engaging content. Our student co-host, Miles Franco, who's uh, getting his MBA in music management here at William Patterson the University, uh, is going to read a tweet for you. How you doing, Yanni? Hey, how's it going, man? Good. Um, Ariana Gates would like to know, is there a single most important aspect to remember across all forms of social media, like a golden rule? Golden rule, uh, yeah. No two platforms um, are the same, and they don't uh, necessarily get along with each other. So what works on one won't necessarily work on the other. Uh, and always take that in consideration. I had someone come up to me, an intern recently, uh, come up to me and say, why don't you just connect the Instagram account from this artist to their Facebook page? And I was like, it makes sense when it's just like, you know, you and me, like I can connect to my Instagram, to my Facebook, and that's fine. But when you're an artist with hundreds of thousands of followers or millions of followers, it doesn't like look right when the two things are posted together. You know, you tag someone on Instagram and then, that tag appears on Facebook and that tag, like there's an at sign in front of like that, uh, you know, other artists handle and it makes sense on Instagram, but it doesn't make sense on Facebook. So, you know, she was kind of like, well, why am I repurposing? Or am I taking like screenshots essentially of these Instagrams and then putting them and repurposing them and saying almost the exact same thing. This is like, well, those are the reasons why we're doing that. So it's like, they, they don't necessarily cooperate with each other. Twitter hates Facebook. Facebook hates Twitter. Instagram kind of likes Facebook because they are all owned by the same company. But like, 
They don't necessarily. So when you kind of look at that, like, don't necessarily, if it works on one, it might not necessarily work on the other. And just, you kind of got to feel things out, right? You got to look at like the stats and analytics you have access to, the insights you have access to, and then kind of look how just people more broadly consume media on those particular platforms. Like Facebook specifically right now is trying to become more of a video platform. They want to compete with YouTube. They, they are jealous that YouTube's getting trillions of views a year on videos and those videos are highly monetizable versus, you know, pictures of, you know, people or, you know, your aunt putting up on Facebook. So they want to get more into that game. So, you know, just because you have a, a great picture that might work on Instagram, maybe there needs to be some sort of video component that goes up on Facebook that also tells the story of behind that particular picture on Instagram. So these are just things to take into consideration. Like there is no silver bullet. There is no, you know, magic thing to do anything anywhere. But the one thing is, just remember, like, they are all very different. They kind of have very different histories. Uh, you know, if you read up on there's tenuous relationships between them all. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, if you, I don't know if everyone remembers, but uh, when uh, Instagram was, uh, you know, several years ago, you could uh, post a photo to Instagram, and it would automatically uh, be posted into Twitter as an actual image. Whereas now if you post an image uh, to Instagram and lo- link it with your Twitter account, it'll come up as a link that redirects back to, uh, to Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that happened is because Twitter went to try to acquire Instagram uh, and they were at like the negotiation table. And then Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, got a call from Mark Zuckerberg that just said, I got an offer that's going to just put them to shame. And sure enough, they bought it for a billion dollars mm-hmm. worth of Versus probably like you know the 500, 600 million that uh, Twitter was going to offer them for it, and in spite, Twitter said no more. You no longer can see your Instagram photos <laughs> in the Twitter feed. You now have to click on the photo link to go back into the app. Mm. So that's like just a, a demonstration of that sort of tenuous relationship. Mm, yeah. You know, and the same thing happened with Snapchat. Snapchat they offered uh, Evan Spiegel three billion dollars for Snapchat, and he told Mark Zuckerberg to go kick rocks. And, you know, that, that's the same sort of thing you see going on there. It's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people out, you know, with their visions and their ideas, and, you know, they don't necessarily want to work collaboratively and cooperatively together. So that's one thing I'll say. Long-winded, but that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, we got tweet number two. This comes from Yasmin Nazir. She's asking, what's an example of bad marketing that you see every day from big corporations? And, and I'll also add what a bad marketing that you're seeing lots of uh, DIY artists make in, in the digital sphere. Oh, wow. DIY artists and big corporations. Um, one of the things that uh, I think big corporations can probably – the thing about big corporations, they have a – huge marketing spend. So technically they should be on top of everything. So when they do mess up, you know, we all like to wag our fingers at them, but in reality, uh, I think that, you know, it's just a bunch of people at the end of the day. One thing I think that, uh, some big corporations do, they try and join in on every single conversation. They're so, everyone's so sold on social media, which is absolutely correct as they should be they don't necessarily need to join in on every conversation. And sometimes it can come off as really tasteless uh, and just super lame. And I think an example of that is 
I think it was like 9-11. Like you have all these brands tweeting about 9-11. You know, never forget, you know. And, oh, by the way, discounts going on at this particular store. I mean, I saw something. <laughs> I, it's just like I, I saw something. There was a, a huge tragedy. I went to Twitter because I was like, oh, what's like I'm seeing all this something going on. And it was a huge tragedy. And I click on the, uh, the hashtag around the tra- tra- tragedy, and I see uh, a brand-promoted tweet that just pops in my face. And I had to think for a second. Did some person on the media buying team of this company want to tap in on this and try and ingrain that into people who are then searching for this? Like, oh, you're going to get a ton of impressions. There's definitely millions of people searching for that. But, like, wrong place, wrong time. Like, you know, again, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. And you got to know, like, you got to pick your moments on, like, when are the right times to actually uh, try and engage and jump into the conversation versus, uh, you know, hanging out and just not doing that. And you know, I think it does a great job of it is Denny's of, uh, of all the brands mm. on Twitter. I think, I think Denny's does a pretty good job <laughs> at, uh, at their social media, specifically on Twitter, whoever their copywriter is there deserves a raid. So, <laughs> uh, that's what I think. And then DIY artists, I think there's too much like mundane craft that DIY artists post up there. It's like, you know, you got to, on social media, you you got to be real careful as you're coming out of the gate. Like you got to cultivate and figure out what your brand and your identity is mm-hmm. as you're uh, getting ready to you know present yourself to the world. I mean, it's it's one thing if uh, uh, Drake wants to post a, a picture of himself like looking completely goofy or like you know that's you know his breakfast essentially. But you know when you're uh, when you're coming out of the uh, that initial sort of you know promotion of who you are. Mm-hmm. You want to really make sure that you're cultivating your image in a way that's going to uh, invoke that response you're looking for, whether it's uh, you know motivation, whether it's uh, you know excitement, whether it's uh, you know happiness, whatever it is. You know, one of my uh, artists I work with right now is this guy named Scrizzly Adams, hmm. and Scrizzly Adams <laughs> is this guy out of Northern Jersey uh, who's got this really awesome sound, and I think he does a really great job on his Instagram. And just like everything he posts up there is just telling to, you know, who he is as an artist and like, you know, what he's like trying to convey. He's like, I'm the sound of, you know, of the beaten and uh, downtrodden uh, Americans who are in their, you know, who are in their 20s, who are walking into this new America that is completely different than what our parents were, you know, inherited essentially. And like, I'm trying to like show that voice and show that image. And like, this is what I'm trying to cultivate. So I think Scrizz does a, a great job at that. And, you know, he's still pretty DIY. Like, he, he's a recent sign. You know, I'm, I'm helping and consulting him. But, like, his team is small. He's got a couple people working with him. He doesn't have, like, 50 people there trying to tell him what to do. But I think that's one of the things, you know. If you're a brand-new artist, no one cares about what you had for breakfast. And no one really, you know, cares about, you know, the selfies you're taking. I don't know. If you're, if you're just completely being out of character, it's like, the the appeal of uh, an artist is that they are on a pedestal that's different than you know us normal people. They're they're kind of up there a bit. Even you know at the end of the day, they are just chill people. But you know well, maybe that's, Drake that's kind and Danny should collab. Yeah, Drake and Danny's can collab. But but going <laughs> off that point you just made, uh, we did get a number of tweets of of people asking. Of, of the balance between, if you're an artist, of the personal stuff like me and my cat versus me on stage holding the guitar. You know, do you guys have any sort of um, rule of thumb that you do with that if you have an artist? You know, of, of every 10 p- 
pictures that we post, nine are music related, and the and the tenth can be a personal one somehow or is it oh, just I, all I by wish. feel i wish i had some uh some uh, some like a magic bullet there but no i think you know if, if it's a part of your brand a brand like if, if your brand is like uh you know oh, oh, oh some weird kid who likes you know hanging out with your cats like that that works you know i think i think the best artist in social media and probably the best one at branding uh, as a whole is diplo i think there's no better artist who conveys their brand better than Diplo. He's awesome at Snapchat. He's awesome at Instagram. Mm. Uh, he just does a really great job across the board. His Twitter's hilarious. He, uh, you know, riles people up. He gets them upset about things. You know, he posts something on Facebook that says like, like, it'll just be like a random post. It says, I just flew through six different countries and I just realized I have a blunt in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that <laughs> and being like, that is hilarious. Like that is exactly what your fans want to read. And is that going to work for like every artist? No, but like, is it going to work for Diplo? Like a thousand percent. So, you know, it's like, it comes really down to like what the personality is. And that's the most interesting thing I think about working in music is, you know, our brands, our personalities, they can tell us to, you know, screw off and there's nothing we can really do about it. Versus like if I'm selling marshmallows, like a marshmallow is never going to tell me what I can and can't do. So I think that, there's definitely, you know, and brands will spend millions upon millions of dollars trying to figure out what that, you know, golden you know, ticket is, what that magic bolt is. But, you know, we're just kind of, I'm just kind of there trying to advise them on, you know, if they're doing something that seems wrong or like doesn't seem right, like maybe I'll help them out with it. But for the most part, there is no, there's, there's nothing that we can finally say like, oh, that's the right thing you should do. That's the wrong thing you should do. Like it really comes down to the identity of this, uh, this creative individual and what they're trying to convey and the fans who are rallying behind them. All right, we have about four minutes left with you on Music Biz 101 and more, Yanni Peary. So we're going to get another tweet in, and uh, if you could be somewhat brief-ish, then we could mm-hmm. get maybe one more question in. All right, sure. this is from uh, Valerie Marie. She's wondering, what was the thought press process of releasing the Hamilton musical cast album digitally weeks before the physical release? You know, I can't speak completely to uh, that from a Hamilton release standpoint, but I think really what it comes down to is that's just supply chain stuff. Like to be able to get the um, that could probably come down to like you know the bog down studio time. Like it's quick. You know, once you get a, uh, uh, an album mastered, you have all the songs ready to go. It's pretty easy to get it over to uh, uh, the you know the networks like you know whether it's iTunes or Google Play or whatever you're going to and get it to them and have them to be able to distribute it versus like sending that over to a warehouse, having them then burn it on like 50,000 CDs, having the, the packaging go into these CDs, having these CDs distributed and shipped to various retailer points. So that's kind of what we run into. And like, that's, that's one of the issues of the industry. That's great. And, uh, uh, Paul Sinclair, who we should thank for uh, introducing you to us to be, to be here. Paul Sinclair has been a b- great big fan, uh, Paul from Atlantic, uh, and helping you. He also mentioned uh, a name that you know, Riggs Morales, who I guess has yep. done A&R for the Hamilton soundtrack. Uh, Paul's trying to get Riggs to be on the show uh, a little, little bit later in the year so that we can uh, talk more about the Hamilton soundtrack and the play and everything mm-hmm. like that. So that's cool. Um, last question for you on Music Biz 101 and more uh, is from Ashley O'Vera, 
who uh, I believe you knew. She worked in your department. She was an intern there. She's uh, from William Patterson. Last summer. Last summer. And, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, very nice gal. And she wanted to know what uh, went on with uh, Atlantic Records had a special sort of channel on Snapchat Discover. And what can you talk about with that? Because it's not there now. Yeah, that comes down to, you know, again, that's those are kind of, that's an interesting you know sort of situation. So we had the channel on Snapchat. Uh, we obviously no longer have that. There's... Um, there's other, they're kind of rotating through companies, but it really comes down to is how much you're willing to invest back in the Snapchat, right? It's like they want, Snapchat needs to come into and start, start itself out to be like a, a huge advertising network. The thing about Facebook, the thing about Google, um, uh, Twitter's, you know, trying to get there. Uh, they are first and foremost, they're advertising platforms and networks. And then we, they build products that we use every single day and that we become uh, reliant on. Uh, in our everyday life. Uh, Snapchat is uh, under a lot of pressure to start monetizing their platform. And, you know, we are coming there with content that was being consumed on a regular basis. But, you know, a company like, um, you know, Viacom probably has a little bit more money to start you know, buying ads across their service. So it's like kind of this idea of like, hey, you know, you – you buy tons of ads, you can have a channel here. So it's like that's really what it kind of comes down to. Yeah. It's like we, if we've invested tens of millions of dollars into uh, Snapchat, will we still have a channel there? Maybe. Like there's other companies that would be willing to invest a lot more than that. So it's and what they're trying to do is pair certain types of content to uh, what their demographic is. So you know, a, a company like Procter and Gamble who sells soap like might not necessarily be the um, the company that everyone wants to. Uh, to see snaps from, but they have a $2 billion uh, uh, budget and spend on marketing a year. So, you know, who knows? They're trying to find that balance. Interesting. So. It's, it's very similar to the old days of, of record retail where um, you could buy real estate in a, in a, in a record store basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just sort of different stakes, a lot more money. But we need to wrap it up with you because I promised you that you'd be off at 8.53-ish, and it is 8.53-ish. Ish. We're on the ish, ish side of it. But, Yanni Piri, we really do want to thank you for being on the show. This has been tremendous. It has been tremendous. I, text, yeah, for, uh, I, I texted Steve Marconi after you and I spoke the other day. I said, this is probably going to go down as the best, if not one of the best top shows yeah, we've exactly. ever had and this is really tremendous so thank you yanni for being here with us tonight yeah thanks for having me on all right so we will meet you again yanni and thank you again feel free to hang up if you like and we're going to go to some psas and we will be right back and we'll do a little wrap up on music biz 101 or more wpsc bravery radio 8.7 win past the university go Wednesday at 8 p.m.
Ally Mac Project, The World Is Ours. Yep. So we have had Yanni Puri, Digital Director at Atlantic Records, on for the last uh, 55 minutes or so. Um, Dr. What a Marconi. different industry we have today, isn't it? Tremendous. It's totally it different. Was. Totally yeah, different. totally different. I mean, he's got a job that didn't exist six years ago. Exactly. And to bring in an artist and uh, go beyond just the old promo plan and tell them that here's your digital plan and uh, this is what we have as a strategy and then we sort of figure out a niche for the artist and what they're good at. And if they're not good at part of it, then the record label takes over with that part. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. My, Miles, as a, as a fledgling or at, you're an actual MBA student in the music biz, what, what did you take out of that show? Um, well, actually, the biggest thing I took out of that was the, when he was talking about DIY, social media, because uh, I came here as an artist producer myself, and um, I think having a strategy of not post posting like daily activities rather than posting important things about you know branding yourself is like the biggest thing I took out of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because he didn't say don't be personal. He said make sure your personal is with your brand. So if your cat doesn't work with your brand, don't talk about your cat. Uh, you might talk about eating pizza if your brand, if it works with your brand. So it wasn't a question of just talking about business until you get to be a star. But just make sure when you start out that you've got that brand in your head what you want to be and make sure what you say feeds the brand. And my suggestion of that would be don't be a copycat. Mm-hmm. because and, and actually now it's, it's kind of uh, literally because there are so many people out doing the food, doing the cat, doing the dog. You know, right. so so how many artists, you know, we all love cats and dogs. The cat thing drives me crazy because mm-hmm. um, there's there's got to be something else out there that, that some artists on a personal basis is interested in. Maybe parakeets. <laughs> Maybe fish. parakeets, pair of pants. I don't know. But fish. yeah. Yeah, fish. Right. But, but something, you know, because again, he, he said, use your personality to be unique. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many people he talked about the mundane. It's generally mundane if you put up a picture of your cat every, you know, fifth picture and you're an artist. And I see this and, you know, and they're just saying, you know, this is Tommy's tired today. Yeah. It's just you know, for me, right. it does. That doesn't work. No. Well, if it's, it's not. not giving me and anything. if it's not your pet, it's never as personal as if it is your pet. Mm-hmm. You know, you well, yeah, it's a cute dog. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it. Let's go on to what we're uh, going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there were some very good takeaways right. from um, this. And should... I'm very surprised, not surprised, but I'm very, um, I was pleasantly surprised that only six years out of college, how much knowledge he has um, gained about the industri- industry and how confident he sounds. Uh, which, you know, is really something for being only six years out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you sounded great. I mean, Jess, um, real quick, because uh, you took social media class here at William Patterson, the music biz. What did uh, you take out of this? Um, did it reinforce anything that you... Yeah, like how you said to make it personal and how you said to basically, like, intertwine all the different social media websites that are like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but not to make it exactly the same thing. Like, have a common, like, theme around everything and around you. Mm-hmm. The brand, right. Okay. And, and we he, have a... And he agreed with that. He says, don't repost the same exact thing because mm-hmm. it's not going to work. And then it, I say it also shows that you're lazy 
Yeah. When you start doing it, it becomes a job then. And I'll tell you this, Dr. Steve Marconi. Yes. Music Biz 101 and More is not a job. No, it isn't. No, this is this is a labor, a labor of, of love. love. A labor That's of right. love. And I'm spelling labor. I don't know if you can hear the pronunciation with the, an O-U, L-A-B-O-U-R. Yes, I kind of added that in there. Yes. But we want to thank everybody for listening because it is time to wrap up. We have a show coming on after. But please check out the, all of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. And, and it's week? International Podcast Day, by the way, everyone. So make wow. sure you check out podcasts. Wow. Especially the Music Biz 101 and More podcast. And next week we have Fred Goodman. Fred Goodman. Uh, rock and roll author from Rolling Stone, yes. New York Times, and then wrote especially a great book about Alan Klein. So mm-hmm. uh, read Mansions that Mansions on the Hill, if anybody have ever read that about 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Very excellent book. Uh, so you've been listening to Music Pages 101 and more, a brave new radio, 88.7 WPSC, on the campus of William Patterson University. And you're listening, in, of course, in the background to The World is Ours, the Allie Mack Project. We want to thank Jess Frank for producing our show tonight. Thank you, Jess. Very nice. Sorry for technical difficulties, everyone. But, but they were kind of fun. Miles Franco, we want to thank you for being an MBA student and giving some money to this university. <laughs> yeah, we've got to have Miles back. Yeah, Miles, have you, them both back. Yeah, well, yeah, Jess is <laughs> I'm always a regular. Back. So That's there we go. Uh, we want to thank Yanni Peary from Atlantic Records for coming not, on. Yanni's not here, right. but thank you, Yanni. Not Peary. the real Yanni. But no, not that Yanni, but our Yanni. Right. He's our Yanni now. And uh, Yanni. Dr. Esteban Marconi, thank you for being here and well, being thank the you wonderful too, person. Mr. Philp. Yes, I'm a professor, please. Please. So uh, I am uh, Professor David Kirk Philp, and we are going to say adios to you at the count of three. One, two, three. Adios! adios.